you're new, if you are joining us for the first time, uh, we are currently working our way through the book of Hebrews as a church. We started off back in, I believe, mid-September, diving into this book of the Bible. We spent the fall working our way through the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a fascinating book of the Bible. It's up there uh, near the top of my list in terms of uh, books that I'm most intrigued by uh, when I look at the canon of Scripture. It's a book that puts, uh, puts on display the full reality that the Bible as a whole is a, a tapestry that tells one beautifully interwoven story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of it all. That it's not just a bunch of piecemeal stories that have been loosely brought together. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're, they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity. And so the author of Hebrews does something really intriguing. He doesn't say, get your act together, get your head in the game. Rather, he begins with, look at all the ways that Jesus is supremely valuable. For 10 chapters, which we spent much of the fall exploring, the author of Hebrews essentially spins the jewel that is Jesus Christ, facet by facet, putting Jesus on full display for this battle-inflicted audience that he's writing to. Chapter 11 and beyond represents a shift in the book of Hebrews, not in the sense that we now move into the realm where Jesus is no longer made much of, but, but rather in the sense that the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that something happens as we behold Jesus. In putting Jesus on full display for 10 glorious chapters, the author of Hebrews now presents us with this call to faith and endurance, that all of those truths about Jesus are meant to create in us a settled confidence, a confidence in God and his promises, a confidence that drives us to keep trusting, to keep enduring, to keep persevering all the way to the end, to the day we die or Jesus returns. He's after a deepening faith, you could say, that radically impacts the way we look at and engage the present realities of life. And so that's my prayer for each and every one of us this morning, myself included, that God would deepen and strengthen our faith in him and his promises, and that it would cause us to hum humbly and confidently take greater steps of obedient action for the glory of God. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we'll be this morning. Very short passage of Scripture, the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. You may even get out before lunch. You can go ahead and send in your online order to J. Christopher's. You are very welcome. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the chairs in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you come in with a Bible this morning that's difficult to understand or you don't have a Bible uh, in your possession, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. We'd love to know that you're exploring the scriptures on your own time. Let me pray for us and, and ask God to, to move and work by the power of his spirit as we open up his word this morning and then we'll jump in and we'll get to work. God, we desperately need you. We do desperately run to you. We come to you in need of the power and outworking of your Holy Spirit even now. God, I can open up and expound three verses of Scripture that begin Hebrews chapter 12, and it could possibly fall on deaf ears without the power of your Spirit. Would you awaken our slumbering hearts, my own included? Would you give me a feeling sense of the very things that I preach along with everyone else in this room? Pray that we would walk away with a greater and deeper understanding of what faith is, how faith works, and, and what it means to run the race that is the Christian life for your glory and for our joy and good. Would you 
Would you open our eyes to see, our ears to, to hear, and our hearts to respond? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So for the past couple of weeks, if you haven't been with us as we've gathered in this place, we've spent a, a significant amount of time digging into the subject of faith. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 has much to say about faith, a great deal, in fact. It's a significant chapter as it pertains to understanding what faith is and how faith works. Two weeks ago, we camped out on the first six verses of chapter 11, and we began with one of the most famous declarations in all of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That faith is not a hunch. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is not a naively optimistic leap in the dark, hoping that there's a floor underneath you when you make that leap. Faith is both assurance and conviction, the Bible says. And, and that assurance and conviction have to do with things hoped for and things unseen. So there's a future aspect of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, things that have not yet been fulfilled, things that have not yet come to pass. And then there's the conviction of things not seen, things that are beyond our visible perception of reality in some sense. In the language of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, faith involves believing that God exists, a God that we cannot visibly see, and it involves believing that he rewards those who seek him, a hope in what the future holds that impacts the way we live our lives in the present. Last week, we went on a warp speed tour of the Old Testament, peering into the lives of the saints of old. Men and women of faith throughout the ages. Men and women who both believed in God and believed God. Some in the midst of great triumph, others in the furnace of affliction. Why does the author of Hebrews find it necessary to include those things that are found in chapter 11? Why does he not just jump from chapter 10 to chapter 12? Why is the book of Hebrews not a 12-chapter book, but rather a 13-chapter book? Well, Remember the original recipients of this letter, if you've been around for any amount of time in this series, they're, series, they're weary. It's been a while since they've been joyfully vitalized in their faith. Maybe you bring that into this place this morning yourself. Hebrews chapter 10, not too far in the rearview mirror for us. Verses 32 through 34, the author of Hebrews says, But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That with Jesus as your treasure, you joyfully persevered in the furnace of affliction. But the race is not over. You haven't crossed the finish line yet, which is true for all of us in this room this morning. Chapter 11 provided us with a list of many who have crossed the finish line. None of them perfect, but all of them persevering to the end. Pick up chapter 12, verse 1. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here in chapter 12, the author of Hebrews presents us with a pretty common metaphor for the Christian life. 
this idea of, of the running of a race. He's calling us to run with joyful endurance. Reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. Corinth was the home of the Isthmian Games, hard word to pronounce, second only to the Olympics at its time. And in order to compete in those games, you had to commit yourself to a 10-month rigorous training program. The Christians in Corinth saw all these athletes training all the time, laying down their rights, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to win, at all costs, and for what? A perishable pine wreath, Paul says. People make sacrifices all the time for things that, that they can't take with them when they die. Malcolm Form, uh, Forbes famously coined the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. And the truth is this, he who dies with the most toys is dead and his toys become someone else's toys. If people will make sacrifices for things that perish, why would we not make sacrifices uh, sacrifices when the imperishable is at stake is what Paul is, is getting after there. He goes on to say in that famous passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In other words, I'm not caught up in the moment so much that I don't know where the finish line is. The finish line is the arms of Jesus and I'll make every sacrifice necessary to receive that embrace. That word discipline in 1 Corinthians 9, it, it carries with it the idea of giving oneself a black eye. It's the idea of what the Apostle Paul is getting after there. He takes the race very seriously. Does that mean that salvation is Jesus plus good running? By no means. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We talk about that all the time around here. That was that gospel centrality language in that video. But, but, that doesn't take away from the fact that running with joyful endurance toward the finish line reveals that faith in Jesus has actually taken root in our lives. We love him so much that our eyes are fixed on, on his embrace and we run, we run toward him. Coming back to, to this morning's passage, the author of Hebrews is communicating something very similar. Coming back to verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the cloud of witnesses being all those men and women of faith that we looked at last week in chapter 11, it's not so much that they're looking down on us as spectators as it is that we're, we're looking to them as lives that bear witness as to what it is to live by faith. It's not so much that they look at us as it is that we look to them. It's not that they see us, but rather what we see in them. Their, their lives give evidence to us that faith is actually possible. We're to imitate the faith of the saints of old. They look to the coming Messiah for hope, and we look to the Messiah who has come. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we run? How, how do we do that? How do we run with joyful endurance? How do we persevere? Well, for one, according to verse one here, it requires the shedding of things that impede our ability to run. 
There's the laying aside on the one hand of sin. Sin is real, and as we all know, it doesn't go away when we become Christ followers. It's a real threat that we have to contend with each and every day. And it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. The sin that clings so closely to you might not be the sin that clings so closely to me or the person to your left or your right. We're all different. We all have our own unique battles with sin and unbelief. I don't know about you, but one of the sins that clings so closely to me, if I'm honest, is the sin of self-determination. I really want to be in control of all the elements of my story. I don't want to have to live by faith like Abraham, not knowing the land that I'm going to. I want all of the sordid details figured out. I want all the, the X's, Y's, and Z's filled in with actual numbers in my life so that I can kind of know where this, this story's going. And what that communicates is a failure, honestly, to trust that God is good regardless of circumstance for me. A failure to trust that God is in control no matter where the story goes. A failure to trust that God loves me and will do whatever it takes to make me look more like Jesus. That's a sin that clings a little closer than others in my life. How would you answer that question? What are the what are the sins that cling so closely to you? I'm not going to take you through a list of possible sins and have an assessment moment because I don't think I need to with a passage like this, with a verse like Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, you probably see it. And if you don't, my guess would be that those who are close to you see it because it clings so closely. And so if you struggle to know what the answer to that question is, I would encourage you to take that to the people who know you best. Take that to your spouse. Take that to your kids, maybe, if they're, able, if they're old enough to communicate. Take that to your, your family members, to your friends, to your uh, fellow community group members, if you're a part of a community group, and bat that question around. And to be sure, just to, to be clear, sin is not just what we see above the dirt in our lives, the visible manifestation, so to speak. Usually what's above the dirt is an outworking of what's going on in our hearts below the dirt. A root idol in the human heart that drives us to think, to, to feel, to act the way we do in moments of sin and unbelief. The author of Hebrews is essentially saying, Jesus is so much more precious, so much more valuable than the sin that you cling to and that clings to you. And notice, and this is where it gets a little trickier, that it's not just the laying aside of sin, but also every weight. That word weight can also be translated as hindrance or encumbrance. These are things that are not necessarily categorically evil or sinful, but things that keep us from fixing our eyes on Jesus and running the race with joyful endurance. These are, and, and I question whether or not to even throw this out there because I find it deeply convicting, um, and I don't like to throw things out there that sound like what I'm about to say, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. Weights, hindrances, encumbrances are oftentimes things that if the Holy Spirit were to tell us to shed them, we would label it conviction. But if anyone else were to point those things out to us, we would label it as legalism. Think about that for a second. We're not talking about things that are categorically evil or sinful. And so there's something that happens in us. I can't believe you would say that to me. Don't you understand that salvation is by grace alone, brother? Through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone? That because Netflix isn't inherently evil, it's not acceptable to lovingly point out that, that binge watching for hours upon hours on end might be a hindrance to seeing and savoring Jesus. 
that because technology isn't inherently evil, it's not acceptable to lovingly point out that the instant phone grab every time there's a silent moment in our lives might be a hindrance to seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Now, let me be honest again for a second. I'm throwing out those particular examples because they hit close to home for me personally. So I'm looking in the mirror as I'm saying those things. We all have those things in our lives that are not categorically evil or sinful, but are impeding our running toward Jesus. In the name of, in the name of grace, may we never point the finger at holiness and call it legalism. Is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone? Yes and amen. Again, we say it all the time around here. But that's not incongruent with the shedding of sin and things that hinder our running to Jesus. You can tweet this, what I'm about to say, if you want. I think it fits into the hundred and whatever characters. Holiness is not an enemy of the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel. Let me say that again. Holiness is not an enemy of the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel. The Apostle Paul understood that better than anyone. The same guy who preached salvation by grace alone over and over again in, in the books that he wrote that, that make up our New Testament canon also said, I'll give myself a proverbial black eye if that's what it takes to persevere to the finish line and receive the, the warm embrace of Jesus Christ. And so this is my prayer. I wrote it down. I pray that our hearts would be so gripped by God's glorious grace that we would long to shed sin and wait, knowing that it allows us to run unencumbered toward the very one who has rescued us by that grace. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's another fascinating thing about verse 1. Not only is the shedding of sin and weight not one size fits all, but the race itself is form-fitted for each and every one of us in this room. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. For each of us, the race looks a little bit different. Look no further than the contrasting examples found in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Some shut the mouths of lions. Others were sawn in two. That's not the same race. Have you... You ever had a conversation with another person and you found yourself in, in this kind of exchange? I could never do what you do. I have so much respect for you. Really? I could never do what you do. I have so much respect for you. In some sense, when you find yourself in those conversations, that's actually quite biblical. Though we bear one another's burdens, there's a unique personal aspect of running the course that God has put in front of us. I'm reminded of the conversation between Jesus and Peter in John chapter 21, where Jesus has just declared to Peter that Peter's going to die a martyr's death. Great conversation, right? You're going, seriously, can we, I don't know, talk about things going on in the culture, uh, whatever, what we're going to eat for breakfast, Jesus, and, and he throws out, you're going to die a martyr's death. And in John 21, verse 21, you pick up the story, when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, in other words, that he not die a martyr's death, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter and John's courses were not one and the same. Neither are ours. God has called us to run a course that he has sovereignly designed for his glory and our ultimate joy and good. And he doesn't promise that it'll be easy. 
If it were, there'd, there'd be absolutely no need for the word endurance in verse 1, right? In fact, we, we will face such challenges along the way that, that shedding sin and hindrances itself even is not enough. We must also keep our eyes fixed on Jesus if we hope to joyfully endure to the finish line. Look at verse 2. As we shed the, the sin and weight that clings so closely, we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, the author of Hebrews says, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What I'm about to say might be the most critical thing I've said over the course of the last three weeks as we've talked about this topic, this subject of faith. You ever find yourself looking in the proverbial mirror trying to assess whether or not your faith is good enough? Do, doing that thing where, where you, you kind of try to determine on a scale of one to ten, where do I fall right now at this point in my life? Am I an eight on the faith meter? Am I a three? Where am I? What are the implications of that? Does God love me if I fall below a five? You know that thing we do. We navel gaze. And the reality is this. I have yet to talk to a person who does that and has found their faith deepened or strengthened by that exercise. I find it absolutely fascinating, and the author of Hebrews has been arguing this for 11 chapters now, that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, our faith is actually strengthened. When we navel gaze and try to figure out where our faith is on the Richter scale, so to speak, our faith is actually weakened. Why is that? I think verse 2 gives us the answer. Because none of us is the founder nor the perfecter of our faith. Jesus is. Which is why... This is so critical about the culture we're going after a church. This is why we're so committed as a church to keeping Jesus in front of your face at all times, as much as we possibly can. Putting the greatest treasure in the universe on full display for you. We actually believe that as you see and savor Jesus Christ, you'll find yourself joyfully enduring come what may. That over the course of months and years, you'll go, this is crazy, I'm not navel-gazing, and yet my faith is stronger than it used to be. He's both the founder and perfecter of our faith. Just a, a few incredible things that flow forth from that statement. If you have that statement written on a coffee cup or a placard on your wall or a bumper sticker, I hope you walk away with a deeper, greater understanding of what that phrase means. What is that? He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Just a few things. Number one, that implies that without Jesus, we're hopeless. You, you and I, like the men and women of Hebrews chapter 11, do not have perfect faith. Jesus is the only one who ever has or ever will have perfect faith. But, but here's the beauty of the gospel, and I don't think we talk about this enough as the church. Jesus takes our sin upon himself and gives us his perfect record. We do talk about that a lot around here. But what we don't talk about oftentimes or think about is that that doesn't just include his perfect obedience, but also his perfect trust and settled assurance. Think about that. If you're a Christian, you've been gifted Jesus' perfect record of trust and settled assurance. You've been declared to be of perfect trust and settled confidence in the eyes of God. If nothing else sinks in, just let that one sink in and blow your mind. 
You've been declared to be of perfect trust and settled confidence in the eyes of God. Not because your trust is perfect, but because Jesus' trust is perfect on your behalf. That's the gospel. Second reality that flows forth from that phrase, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is that Jesus is the perfect example, the perfect model of faith. Again, he's the first to ever live a life of perfect faith out of which flowed perfect obedience. By faith, we're told here in verses two and three, he endured the shame, the cross, the hostility, and he carried that faith all the way to the right hand of the throne of God across the finish line in triumphant completion. In that sense, Jesus is greater than all the men and women of Hebrews chapter 11. Again, it's that Jesus is greater theme that we've been talking about since September. He's the the greatest exemplar of faith, the pioneer of perfect faith. Thirdly, Jesus, as it pertains to this language of being the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus is at work in helping us to become what we've already been declared to be in him. That Jesus is not only the founder of our faith, bringing us into the family of God as adopted sons and daughters, but he's the perfecter of our faith, finishing the good work that he began in us. He will see it to completion, Philippians 1.6. We we talked about uh, this this kind of illustration before where uh, if you're married on on your wedding day, you were declared alongside of your spouse to become one flesh. You're declared one on the day of your wedding. But as all of you married people in the room know, when you wake up the next day, it's not like you've got all that figured out, right? I mean, something as simple as when to take the trash out and who's gonna do that is all of a sudden something you gotta sort through. And that's a very tiny issue, right? For the rest of our lives, we actually functionally become what we've already been declared to be, one flesh. And you see this, you see this in elderly people when they get up into their 80s and 90s and one of them dies and the spouse doesn't take too long to follow because there's been this functional knitting together of what was declared to be true from the very beginning of that union. Very similarly, that's how the Christian life works. When you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, you were declared to be of perfect and settled confidence in the eyes of God, trusting fully, in the promises of God and in the character and being of God. You were declared to be that. Again, not because you had perfect trust, but because you were given Jesus' perfect trust record by grace. But again, we all know that none of us comes out of the spiritual womb at conversion with perfect finish line faith. If, if, you're, if you would proclaim that, you're the one I want to have coffee with this week. I want to hear how that's been going for you, how that works, because I want some of what you got. None of us comes out of the the spiritual womb at conversion with perfect finish line faith. Jesus keeps us as we run the race. He holds us fast as we progress toward the finish line. He, He functionally shapes us into more of what we've already been positionally declared to be in him. And he does that all the way to the very end, to the day we breathe our last breath or he returns He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. And and that means that we can have great confidence that we will endure. That's good news. He holds us fast as we keep looking to him. One final thing to point out in this passage, and it's kind of a big one. Notice that enduring faith for Jesus had everything to do with future joy. You see that? 
What sustained Jesus and his enduring of the cross? The shame, the hostility? Answer, the joy that was set before him. The joy of his reunion with the Father. The joy of being crowned with glory and honor and having all things put under his feet. The joy of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. It's the same way we endure the twists and turns and uphill battles associated with our own race. The joy that is set before us. The the key to setting aside, laying aside those sins and hindrances that impede our ability to run is to fix our eyes on the joy that awaits us at the finish line. The joy of everlasting life. The joy of everything sad coming untrue. The joy of being part of the most gloriously, happily ever after the world has ever known. The joy of seeing Jesus face to face and being eternally satisfied in and with him. The Christian life is a life of joyful expectation, joyful anticipation. A life lived believing that Jesus could return at any time and an excitement at the thought. If, if you've experienced less than that in the eyes of fellow professing Christ followers in, in this land of cultural Christianity, I'm sorry that that's the case, but it doesn't make it any less true. Christian life is an adventure. It is a life of joyful anticipation, joyful expectation. He's going to come back. He's going to return. Are we excited about that? Are we longing for and looking forward to that in such a way that it's shaping the very reality of the way we live our lives in the present? That's what the author of Hebrews wants for us. Living in the here and now as if at a moment's notice we might actually see his face and allowing that joyful vision of what's to come to inform the way we run. The author of Hebrews is saying, consider Jesus. See what he endured to purchase your redemption. See him in all of his glory now seated at the right hand of the Father. See and savor him, actively casting aside every sin and hindrance that slows you down. Don't grow weary. Don't grow faint-hearted. He's worth it. He's a worthy prize, and he is yours. In a moment, we're going to shift into the next part of our our gathering together, our assembly and worship. We're going to move into a time of receiving of communion, If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. We're also going to move into a time of worship through singing, worship through praying. There will be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you if you want someone to come alongside of you in prayer. The communion tables, uh, either of these two on either side of me and the one in the back by the, the coffee area will be available until the end of this service. As you prepare to come receive the elements, I think, I think it would be a good exercise for us to, to stop, to slow down, to have a moment of, of self-examination, to ask the question, what are those sins that cling so closely to me? What are those hindrances, even those things that are not inherently or categorically evil or sinful, but that are impeding my ability to, to run with joyful endurance with Jesus as, as the vision and the prize? What, what are those things? To ask that question, but to not sit there so long that it becomes a navel-gazing exercise where we begin to question our position before God. Because Jesus has fully secured that for us.